Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance patient-centered, consumer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, uh, this is going to be a, a slightly different interview and dialogue today in that we have the pleasure and privilege of speaking with Dr. Josh Luke. Uh, Dr. Luke is a former hospital CEO who is a healthcare futurist and a real social media influencer within healthcare. Now, there are uh, a few topics I really want to cover with Josh uh, today, employee health costs being one, post-acute care being another, and the direction of payment and the evolution of hospital systems. Um, but I suspect that this will be a free-ranging conversation. Uh, before we begin, let me give you a little backra- background on, uh, on Josh. He's a healthcare futurist, uh, a former hospital CEO who also ran uh, skilled nursing facilities. His work uh, has focused on sharing uh, simple tactics on how, how to make healthcare more affordable for families and employees, as well as how to gain access to the best hospitals and physicians. Now, uh, Josh started his career as uh, actually a jet-setting sports marketer, working with some of the most famous uh, athletes in the world. Uh, pretty early on, though, he had a career change, and I'm going to let you uh, let him tell you about that if he'd like to. And that led him to become a hospital CEO by the age of 32. He spent 10 years uh, in the system as a hospital CEO and also had a few more years as an administrator uh, in nursing facilities. Uh, but then uh, a new owner came uh, and took over the hospital he was a CEO in. He found himself out of a job with no health insurance for his family. And at around the same time, his mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Soon after that, he uh, penned his first book in 2015 and uh, became a best-selling author. He, since then, has really found great purpose, and I think you'll hear great passion and meaning in sharing his experiences of both being an expert within the healthcare system as well as being without the healthcare system. Um, and he really is assisting others to better understand and navigate the system. So he is uh, an award-winning healthcare strategist, uh, a, a tremendous social media uh, influencer, uh, and a leader in the social media realm. And he's a sought-after international speaker and author. He hosts the Health Wealth podcast and radio show, as well as the uh, Health Wealth uh, Daily Video Minute on LinkedIn. I've had the uh, pleasure of hearing him speak in public, and uh, folks, I think we're in for a real treat today. So, Josh, without further ado, how are you doing? today. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here, Zave. Oh, it, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, I've got so many questions to ask you, but before we jump in uh, with some of the more uh, uh, serious questions, although this is a serious one as well, I know, you know, it's interesting, you, you in your bio, it says you used to be a jet-setting uh, marketer, but from my perspective, I, I track you on social media, you, you're still a jet-setter. Um, in fact, you were just, <laughs> I, right? you were just in, I can't keep up with you. I get tired actually just following you uh, sitting in my desk chair. Um, but uh, but you were just in a bunch of conferences. One was the uh, South by Southwest conference, um, which I've never been to, but uh, sounds fantastic. I just want to ask you, just you know, off the top of your head, wh- was there a major learning or major takeaway or some real big aha you experienced in that South by Southwest conference that you want to share with us? 
Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. I mean, we're fresh off of that. So at the day of this taping, I mean, I've only been back in town a day and a half since South By, and it goes on for three weeks. And, you know, to give you kind of the real quick history on South By, it started as a film festival like Sundance or Cannes, and it's really turned into Austin's kind of crown jewel down there in Austin, Texas, Texas for three weeks a year, where it's become an all things arts and entrepreneurial festival. I, I know um, Elon Musk was there yesterday and they often attract some of the biggest names in, in business from all over the world to come down there because it is such a innovation and creative gathering. It started with film and then kind of ventured out to music and then to art and then to business. And I've been fortunate to be asked two years in a row to be a featured author. Uh, and, and again, coming from an artist's perspective as authors, just being creative. And they allow us to present, um, you know, I was presenting in a session right after Bernie Sanders. So, so, uh, and apparently a day before Elon Musk. So there was a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, I was promoting my new book, Health Wealth is Healthcare Bankrupting Your Business and Nine Steps to Financial Recovery from Forbes Books. But to answer your question about was there kind of a theme that emerged? Uh, I'm a little biased in this regard because I'm kind of looking for it. But the answer is I, I found it very quickly. And that is, 2018 is no doubt the year that American businesses and families have reached their tipping point on healthcare spending. And this was evident at South by just by the number of different books and speakers that we're talking about healthcare and wellness and affordability. It's been evident since, you know, my book launched on January 18th on Amazon. It hit bestseller that night, which in itself is a sign that people are are ready to declare the tipping point on this healthcare hyperinflation issue. But also since then, you've seen Apple uh, make a move with 12 major health systems to put our electronic medical record in our hand. You've seen Disney down in Orlando say we're canceling our traditional insurance and we're going to contract directly with the employer. You then saw Amazon, JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway say, hey, we're going to blow the system up and start over. It's just not working. You've seen uh, Intermountain and Ascension Healthcare's partner with uh, several others to say, hey, we can no longer contract with uh, pharmacy in the way we have in the past. We're going to create our own generic pharmacy. There's just been so many different things that have happened uh, that show, and, and gosh, we're not even three months into 2018. And look at all the things that have happened that are just American business and family's way of saying, we can no longer afford to pay this much for basic healthcare services. You know, it's it's uh, really interesting that you say that. And I, I, I share that observation. I, I used to, let's say two, three years ago, give talks to physician leaders and I would show timelines and there'd be a few dots. And usually there were spaces of months uh, between the dots, sometimes even a year or so. Now, when I show slides like that, um, I, I have to blow up the slide because the, like, as you say, the, the disruptions and the changes, um, are, are, and they're so profound. Like you were talking about with Disney or Apple, um, uh, or Amazon, they're coming almost, it seems every week, if not sometimes two or three times a week. So I completely agree with that. Now you're, you, you focused on the issue of cost and, um, you know, the question I really wanted to start off by asking you, which is really what are the big issues? Why? I mean, you, you're spending, you've turned your career, um, you know, as you said, you, you left, uh, you know, marketing and you went into healthcare and you were inside, uh, working as a CEO for many, many years, over a decade, decade and a half. And, um, and then you, you 
took this turn and you're now, uh, you know, going around the country, around the world, uh, helping people out with healthcare. What are the, what's, what's your why? What, what is the, the burning issue? Is it, is it the cost and, and, and how are you actually seeing the cost being such a, a major issue? Well, I think the obvious answer to the why is because it's personal to me and it's personal for two reasons. You know, more than 50% of a millennial's lifetime earnings at current, current projections will go to healthcare in America. And that's tragic. I have three children that are Generation Z. They're not even millennials. And when they finally get around to actually caring about healthcare, when they're, they're in high school now, but when they get in and out of college and all of a sudden somebody says, what about healthcare? Uh, and they're going to come to my wife and I and say, hey, yeah, I'm just not going to get insurance. It's not that big of a deal to me. Well, it's not going to be that big of a deal to them because it's going to require one of every two dollars they ever earn to pay for it. And can we blame them? Can we blame them when they come and say, I'm just not into it. I'll just I'll roll the dice. So so it's personal in, in the fact that I have kids that are facing a healthcare dilemma where they won't be able to afford basic access to care. But what led me here, the why to what led me here is much different. It actually is a story that, and you've mentioned that I used to work in sports marketing. It was my grandmother's disease process and the questions that arose out of that that originally led me to to make a a, um, a pivot, a calculated pivot in my career to healthcare administration. I was blessed just a few short years later to become a hospital CEO, and then 15 years into uh, that healthcare career, uh, for my mom to get diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease at age 65. Um, Kind of along the same lines, same time that Obamacare passed and that same time I was asked to write a book on readmission prevention, all those things kind of happening in just a few months span. I had a realization that uh, as I'm doing the research for this book, my goodness, Josh, you, you went into this industry to to change it because you had so many questions that went unanswered. But really, you've just become part of the problem because it's a fee-for-service model where doctors and hospitals are reimbursed simply for putting a head in a batter for providing a service as opposed to prioritizing keeping Americans healthy and at home. And for all those reasons, it's personal to me because I was convicted that I'd become part of the problem. And that was the day that I decided, hey, I'm going to no longer be part of the problem. I'm going to be a truth teller. I'm going to pull back the curtain on those who don't want to be transparent, most particularly uh, hospitals and insurers. You know, we're going to declare and demand transparency in healthcare delivery and really return uh, basic healthcare access in America to American families and businesses. So, so Josh, I, I want to uh, dive in on what you said and, you know, just emphasize or punctuate uh, that number, which you said, which that uh, the prediction is, uh, and it's more than one group that has, has demonstrated this, that, that literally 50% of millennials uh, paychecks will go to pay for healthcare over their lifetime of earnings, which is just almost an infathomable number. Uh, I can't, I've heard that before, actually, I've read it. Uh, and I've looked at those numbers. And it's just it's just astounding. I, I do want to I, I want to just say I did I did read through your two of your books, uh, Execute, which you wrote in 2017. Uh, you know, what a, it's a, a former hospital CEO tells all on what's wrong with American health care, whatever every American needs to know. And I also did read through Health Wealth, uh, the book you just published, Nine Steps to Financial Recovery for uh, for employers and employees. 
in in the execute uh, x slash acute um, book that you wrote, uh, you tell a, a story which I completely related to, uh, which was about your grandmother Belva Riddle, and um, and Grandma Belva uh, ended up uh, in the hospital and then in um, in post what we call post acute care, uh, long term care or, or, or nursing home skilled nursing facility care, and. And it was really um, sort of a, a shocking description uh, of what she went through. And, and I completely even related with the fact that you felt helpless to change that course as a family member. Um, and then, of course, the cost of her care. If, if I recall, it was, it was somewhere around a quarter million dollars is what it ended up being all told when she was cycling through that hospital post-acute care, hospital post-acute care system. I, I've recently begun to, uh, in, in my work as in population health, really dive into to the post-acute care space. And um, I'm just wondering if you could shed a little bit of light on what you've discovered or what you'd like to share with, with folks about, about what's going on in post-acute care in terms of how, how the costs are driven up. Yeah, and thanks for um, focusing on that because I think it's really important. And, and if you are someone who has a loved one uh, or a parent who's nearing their golden years and you're starting to need to think a little bit more about assisted living or a nursing home, Execute, a former hospital CEO tells all, is actually, it's got two chapters that were developed just for you, just for that. And I will tell you of all the, I think I got 75 or 80 reviews on Amazon. It averages like a 4.8. I'm really grateful people have responded to it well. Um, but those two chapters are probably the two that are most complimented by uh, people outside of the industry that just said, gosh, I wish I would have had this before my mom got sick or gosh, this was so helpful when my mom did get sick because it, it goes into great detail to explain the difference between every level of post-acute care. And when I talk about post-acute care, I'm also talking about assisted living and non-medical home care. And a few years ago, people would really push back on that and say, look, you know, non-medical home care is just like babysitting and assisted living is just like paying rent and insurance doesn't do it. Well, it's because of, of folks, uh, Zev, like you and I, that have been advocating for these to be included in the discussion that insurers, including Medicare Advantage, are now paying for these as benefits because they they are paid for at a significantly less rate than a nursing home or than home health. And let me give you an example for people who might be scratching their head right now. My mom, unfortunately, as I mentioned, is in her latest stages, later stages of Alzheimer's disease. She really doesn't have a physical need for home health therapy right now. She, what she needs are eyes and ears to keep her safe when my dad can't be home because they still live at home. And that's somebody to help her groom, to help her uh, use the, the restroom, to, to help her eat and make sure she's uh, getting hydrated. And that's $25 an hour, and it's traditionally not covered by insurance, whereas home health is $100 an hour at a minimum and, and may be covered by insurance if they qualify. And one of the problems that you learn when you really get down in the thick of things like you and, our, you and I are, Zeb, when you meet with regulators from Medicare and from the federal government, um, what they what they point out to me is, hey, Josh, if your mom um, needed non-medical home care and you couldn't afford it, and so the case manager, the social worker at the hospital or for the insurer said, oh, we'll see if we can get her qualified for home health, you know, the federal government often calls that fraud hmm. because you either qualify or you don't. And when people say, we'll see if we can get you qualified, um, there can be a, a real gray area there. And it really is a good example of, of what a lot of my presentation stories come down to, Zeb, which is um, is the government is is really sick and tired of uh, healthcare providers spending their money 
uh, not because patients qualify, but because it's out there to, to, to be made, if you will. And it's, it's uh, covering people's rear ends. Let me give an example. As a nursing home administrator and a hospital uh, executive, we were trained that, hey, it's safe and smart to send every patient home with home health if they're going home. It covers our rear end and reduces our liability. Well, the federal government says, hey, wait a minute. That's not how the benefit works. They either qualify for it because they need it, it being mm -hmm. home health, or they don't. It's not there for you to cover your rear end uh, so your liability is reduced. And this is why the fee-for-service era, which I call the fee-for-service free-for-all, um, really put us in a situation where there's no money left in the Medicare fund. And look no further than President Trump's initial appointee, Dr. Tom Price, and you being a physician, if you understand this, you know, Tom Price, uh, he, he disliked the Affordable Care Act with every fiber in his body and wanted nothing more than to undo it, but how, because he wanted to return to a fee-for-service system that, that really empowered physicians to be the decision maker, which we'd, we'd always done. And, and in nine months before he resigned, he was unable to do that. And this is an administration that's proven they're willing to do whatever they want, whenever they want, without asking permission, and he still couldn't do it. And there's a simple reason why. There's no money left in the Medicare fund. And that's really why we're facing, you know, this transition to a value-based model where we're, we're prioritizing keeping patients safe in the home. And let me say one last thing as uh, for you and, and about uh, Dr. Tom Price. Um, you guys represent the good guys, the guys that are doing things right. They're out there trying to do more research and, and do the right thing and talk to the right people to figure out how to move this needle closer. It's the very, very, very small, less than 1% or 2% of physicians who are abusing the system that are ruining it for everyone by spending dollars unnecessarily, by referring people for unnecessary tests in the hospital, referring every patient to a long-term acute care or acute rehab or a nursing home upon discharge from the hospital, even when they don't need it. And so what we're trying to do is to empower patients and families. When a doctor says your mom or your dad or your loved one or your spouse or you need to go to a nursing home after the hospital, say, hey, wait a minute, convince me that that's true because no American wants to go to a convalescent home. That's a fact. So, so Josh, you know, this is, uh, I, I could spend so much time with you on this and, and drill down uh, deep. I'm, I want to move on to some other things, but before we do, I do want to kind of spend a moment on this because I agree with you. You know, uh, my, my understanding of the numbers is that uh, a quarter of healthcare dollars, if not more, are spent in this sort of what we call post-acute care space that after discharge from the hospital and that kind of bouncing back and forth. And so it's a huge uh, amount of uh, of uh, you know American uh, healthcare expenditure on this particular area, and my sense of it is the system. And again, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but the system itself, the larger system, really has uh, you know is, is forcing everyone or pushing everyone to uh, be discharged to the higher cost facilities, and, and so going to a long long term care facility uh, or to a, a skilled nursing facility, as opposed to really uh, you know nudging people and making it uh, uh, more accessible uh, and, and safer to go home, even with some home health. Healthcare uh, and to get people back, you know, in in their own environment, um, and and I'm just wondering from your perspective, and I have this conversation a lot with folks, and we are working uh, 
where I work, we're working very, very hard to, you know, get the you know patients to the right place and the right time with the right care. Uh, and I'm just wondering, is that your take on it? Is there a lot of room or opportunity for uh, for for the system to really get more people home as opposed to go to nursing facilities? Is there more room for us to cut cut down on the length of stay in nursing homes? Uh, and if so, why is that the case? Yeah, for sure, Zevin. I'm glad you asked that because this is this is a whole one hour topic. But having having read my my book Execute, you know uh, now that I have a disdain for the long term acute care and acute rehab industries, not because they don't serve a purpose, but because they are the poster children for complete and utter disregard for capitalistic abuse in the fee-for-service delivery model. They were both uh, levels of care that were created to serve a small niche so we could do it better than in a nursing home. Or we could shorten length of stay in an acute hospital because it's so expensive by getting into a less expensive environment for these just handful of diagnoses that could be expensive but need a little bit longer stay in a hospital. Well, what happened is two or three companies in each of those spaces, long-term acute care, which we call LTAC, and acute rehab completely abused uh, the situation. And initially, for example, let's talk about acute rehab. There were 13 diagnoses. They call them the IRFPI, the IRFPAI, that were covered by acute rehab. And they said, hey, look, we're doing such a great job. Why don't you let us take care of some of these patients that are going to nursing homes too? And next thing you know, the federal government kind of let their guard down and we're letting these acute rehabs, um, you know, admit, you know, patients from well beyond those 13 diagnoses. They're competing now with nursing homes, but they're charging for the same exact patient. They're charging twice as much at times. And they're building freestanding hospitals, not just 100-bed hospitals, but sometimes three in the same city. Uh, they're now publicly traded. Their, their stock's trading higher than the acute hospital across the street that's referring to them. And you mentioned a number of minutes ago that I want to go back to, a quarter of the Medicare budget, and of course Medicare is for retirees 65 and older, is going to post-acute care. Well, at one point, almost 18% of it was going exclusively to LTAC. Wow. And I think there was an obvious question that came about in D.C. when they were discussing the rapid depletion of Medicare funds, I think someone, a congressperson or a legislator from New York most likely said, wow, that's interesting because we don't even have any of those LTACs in our state. Side note, you know, one of the two most populous states in the country doesn't even have that level of care, but it's requiring 18% of the Medicare budget. So I know if I'm one of the other legislators in the room, that begs a very obvious question to me, necessity. Is it necessary at all? Is it solving a problem? And so I wanted to point that out because the New York Times pointed it out twice on a front page uh, series of articles back in 2015 and 16, stating um, that this level of care had abused the fund so bad, so badly that that they were suggesting fraud without using the word. In fact, I'll just finish this point because I know it's a little deep in the woods for some of your listeners, but the average length to stay in, in long-term acute care um, if you want to maximize revenue is 25 days. And again, without getting too mathematical, the New York Times reported that the average length of stay nationally was 25.2 days. And, you know, for those of you who are math whizzes, the standard deviation was less than a half a day, which meant that these facilities were completely and utterly disregarding the patient's health and finding a way to discharge them in exactly 25 days every time, because those that didn't 
were uncontrollable. That means they went back to the hospital or they had no place to go, which is what made the um, standard deviation even as big as it was. Mm -hmm. So, so that said, let's talk more about length of stay. Mm -hmm. uh, length of stay in a nursing home, most states nationally has averaged about 20 days. And let me, let me share with your listeners the reason why. Because on day 21, you as a patient or your father or mother is required to pay a copay. And you'd be amazed how quickly they feel better when they have to dig into their own wallet. And uh, one of the biggest laughs I get when I present to acute hospitals and post-acute facilities before they realize, uh-oh, I'm admitting that I'm being, that he's right, is I say, you know, if you told grandma and grandpa on day one that they had a copay, you'd see how quickly they popped out of their bed and said, you know, I think I'm fine. I don't need therapy. But since you're waiting to do it on day 21, you're getting 20 days out of them at more than 500 bucks a day. That's great business. And there's a lot of nursing homeowners that have gotten rich off of this business. And for those of you familiar with the transition from acute to post-acute, post-acute facilities will take any Medicare patient anytime because they pay on, on average anywhere from $400 to $700 a day. When the patient doesn't need therapy and therefore is not covered by Medicare, but is covered essentially by welfare or private funds, it can be much less than $200 a day. So you see the discrepancy and the difference. And so it becomes a capitalistic game of chess. How long can we keep Josh's mom uh, admitted to this inpatient facility, whether she needs it or not? And we do that by justifying her need for therapy. So uh, to close that thought, I will tell you, I went back into a nursing home as a consultant about five years ago after being gone for 10 years running acute hospitals as a favor for a friend. And they had a contract with Kaiser Permanente, who, if you're unfamiliar, they own the doctor's group, they own the hospital, they own the insurance, okay? So they are a true integrated model, which is what Obamacare is trying to get us to. They sent their own team into the nursing home two days a week, Monday and Thursday, to manage the length of stay. And they started with a goal of let's get them home in seven days. And I remember watching the staff of that nursing home each Monday and Thursday as the Kaiser team would leave. And Kaiser, look, you say what you will, they are an ideal model for efficient management of patients both in and outside the hospital and outside of their home. But I remember the reaction of the, of the nursing home employees every time they'd leave was, oh, shame on them. Don't they know that every patient needs 14 to 21 days in the nursing home to be healthy? And it dawned upon me that they'd been brainwashed. They'd been brainwashed to think that the most lucrative financial method, which is reimbursement, was the right way. And the question I asked those young staffers, and I think they just dipped their heads and walked out the door because it was a little too high level of a conversation for them, was this. Do you think Kaiser provides them more resources and resources in transition and in the home than Medicare does? Because I can guarantee you that they do. And so for us to sit here and, and say shame on them for reducing length of stay. Grandma worked hard for that benefit and deserves to stay longer. Guess what? Grandma never wanted to go to a convalescent home to start with. And she's already been there seven days. And there's a separate conversation we can have about why I consistently use the term convalescent home. And the short version is, is because everybody in the nursing home was trained to never use that term. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I am kind of curious about that, but I, I want to, I want to, I, 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 first of all, I, I, 
I so value your perspective, your insider's perspective, your acumen um, in this realm. Uh, and um, you you write about and and you speak about uh, your approach, your guideline, which is called discharge with dignity. And uh, I and my colleagues have been uh, actually uh, really following your lead in this regard. And uh, and I agree with you. I, I, I you know it seems to me that the system clearly not it seems to me the system is clearly rigged to uh, keep people in for a certain amount of time because there's a third party payer paying. And when that, you know, ends, as you say, somehow magically, uh, everyone gets discharged around the same number of days. And so, so this is not, and the point here, this is not, at least as it, as it seems, uh, this is not patient centered care. This is money centered care and, uh, and, and revenue centered care. And, and and the point is, you know, are are people, uh, you know, approaching discharge or transition from the hospital with this sort of sense that you outlined, the sense of patient centeredness, the sense of dignity? And so, could you just take a moment and explain uh, what the purposes of this discharge with dignity approach? And for the folks who are listening, you can look this up and Google it online. Google it or search it online. Um, Doctor Luke's. Uh, 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 PowerPoints are there. You can see his graphics and his charts, and it's very, very helpful. But you know, since we have you here, I just would love for you to just give a very high level perspective on on why you think it's important to get people, you know, out of the out of the hospital into their homes appropriately, so as opposed to staying uh, too much uh, too long in the in the, in the nursing facilities. And, and what, why is this the more dignified way and more respectful and patient centered way to go? You know, there's there's two things I'll kind of kick that answer off with. You know, each time I speak, I ask for a raise of hands of everybody in the audience before they know I'm setting them up. I say, hey, uh, raise your hand if you can't wait for the day that you get to get admitted to a convalescent home for the rest of your life. And uh, and nobody raises their hand to no one's surprise. And we forget that sometimes when we're a provider because we see that the patient has good insurance and say, oh, they'll be covered in a nursing home. That's the quickest way to get them out of my hospital bed, which is how I maximize my revenue in a hospital. So that's what the discharge process became, unfortunately. And um, I developed a guide called Discharge with Dignity. And that model is really a guide for discharge planners, case managers, or social workers to always remember that the first question we need to ask when it's time to go home from the hospital is, can we get this patient home? And and before we decide if that's possible or not, because the answer is not always going to be yes, we ask ourselves, okay, what resources would they need to go home safely? And then what risks do we need to communicate to uh, the patient and the family if they do decide to go home? And once we've had that conversation, we start at the left on my chart and we work our way to the right. And then we say, what if they go home and they had some support from non-medical home care? Or what if they went home with um, uh, to assisted living where they had 24-7 caretakers there? Or what if we sent them home with home health? And all those things considered before we even consider sending them to a nursing home. And on the, on the chart, it goes from the color of green at, at home to orange uh, for the nursing home. And then it turns red for acute rehab and long-term acute care as you work way to the right because that's the danger zone and where we all start to lose money uh, when you institutionalize a patient um, after discharge from a hospital, uh, whether it's long-term acute care or acute rehab. I was just speaking at the American Case Management Association state meeting uh, last week in Columbus, Ohio. It was a great group 
Um, I do a lot of speaking for both ACMA and Case Management Society of America. I was the keynote at their um, uh, annual meeting back in 2016. And I will tell you, um, one of the statements that came up that I was so excited to hear in Ohio last week was that one of the health systems uses a uh, kind of a motto, and they've actually made some buttons, if you will, uh, that say, why not home? And that actually is is, is a direct um, support statement of what discharge dignity is, which, which really that's the simple way of saying why not home. And mine is the more complicated way of saying, let me teach you how to figure out if we can get this patient home. So I believe that every American wants to go home. I believe that as providers, we were uh, brainwashed, if you will, uh, and a lot of times I'll tell people, your listeners include, look, if, you, if you're not liking some of the things I'm saying, um, I would argue that the only reason you don't like it is because you were poisoned by the fee-for-service era, where we only got paid by putting a head in a pad. Because otherwise, all Zeb and I have talked about today is, is patient-centered care and value-based care. And, and, and caring for my mom and yours in the location where she would prefer to be cared for, and that's at home. It's not in an institution or an infection control, you know, an infection filled facility. So um, those are the things that, that I constantly try to bring, bring people back to. And um, discharge with dignity was my way of saying, hey, um, this is important to me. It should be a priority for all health systems to get patients home. Uh, I've had more than 15 health systems nationwide call and ask permission to use discharge with dignity for trainings. I've granted them permission to do that. I don't make any money off it because that isn't why I intended uh, and designed it. It's just a manner to say we've got to transform this model to get to where we allow the patient to go home. And and one thing that's been happening nationally is is these uh, care acts. Each state, state by state, there's been a, a care plan act being passed. And what I see the care plan act is uh, being about is simply about communicating that the the patient and the family has a right to know that their loved one has a right to go home, whether the hospital case manager or social worker thinks it's safe or not. And as much as I have tremendous respect for the discharge planners, social workers, and discharging physicians, their credibility shot at this point because for the last 30 years, we've been covering our rear end by sending people home. And so when we say, I'm not sure they're safe to go home, it's because we were brainwashed to say that. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. I, I think at least the folks I, I know personally and work with are incredibly well-intentioned and they want to do the right thing. But I think your point is well taken. It's This has been the system. The, the system nudges our behavior. We know this from behavioral economics that it's it's always or mostly always the system, as you say, with the exception of a very, very small percentage of people that um, are, aren't well-intentioned, but most are. But, uh, you know, I love your, uh, your, that button that you mentioned, uh, why not home? And, um, you know, as, as, as I've been working in this area and, and really diving into it more over the last few months, uh, or year or so, uh, you know, I've, I've actually, and after hearing you speak and reading through your books, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's a flywheel and it's, it's, it's hard to, to reverse those years, if not decades of, of, like you say, being brainwashed or being, you know, taught to think a certain way with a certain set of biases. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm just wondering, and since I have you on the line, um, I've been wanting to, to ask you this, but it, it just seems to me that we're all, many organizations, um, like the one I work with are trying so hard to do the right thing to discharge with dignity. Um, I just wonder if, if, you know, it would be, 
great to have a collaborative of some sort where we could learn from each other and really compare each other. And, you know, so questions I have is, you know, in the skill, these skilled nursing facilities or what you call convalescent homes, you know, how do you go in and, and really kind of look over their shoulders and say, listen, you know, I think you could do this to help the patient more, get them out of bed, you know, more rehab, uh, you know, make sure that when they're, you know, when they're ready to go home, that things are, are taken care of. So how, you know, are there best examples out there of people who are doing that and, and, and really optimizing the value of the care and getting people home where they want to be? Yeah. And, and you mentioned the why not home button. Let me give credit where credit is due to Julie Allen, who's the care coordination manager for Mercy Health in Toledo, Ohio. And she was so excited. They're going to be mailing me one. And I already told her I want permission to give them out when I speak because I was so excited to hear it. Um, you know, in terms of a collaborative, I, I own the National Readmission Prevention Collaborative, which is kind of where this journey from hospital CEO to um, Josh Luke, the, the truth teller that's pulling back the curtain on the healthcare delivery system, began is when I was asked to write a book on readmission prevention. And it was because of my unique background in both acute and post-acute care. That's why the American College of Healthcare Executives, ACHE, which is the trade organization for hospital executives, thought it would be appropriate to write this book on readmission prevention, which was my first book, uh, which is published through ACHE.org. That started my journey as somebody who just couldn't help but be a truth teller and pull back the curtain because, look, I was blessed to be a hospital CEO at age 32. I was one of the first Gen Xers to be given that title within the hospital. I asked a ton of questions. I never stopped asking questions, and I never started getting answers. And as my mom got ill, as I mentioned earlier, I realized, gosh, I got into this industry to make a difference, and and I haven't made a difference. I just I, I can't even afford health care myself, and I'm the CEO of an organization. This is out of control. People ask for our prices at my hospital, and not only do we not give them to them, we don't even have them. We don't want them to know that. What other business in America um, doesn't post prices or allow you as the consumer of goods, the payer, to agree upon the price in advance. So those those 20% of hospitals that in this day and age that actually do now provide prices to patients, it's just a quote. It's an estimate, as you know, and they will never guarantee it because it's all based on what the physician and team, the staff, quote, code during the procedure. And there's no ancillary services often included. So in anesthesia, it's just, it's, it's amazing to me that healthcare continues to get away uh, with the things they do get away with. And if you, you've read Health Wealth, I know, Zev, so to give people a read, Forbes kind of chased me down, saw me on uh, LinkedIn, Forbes Books, and said, hey, we are looking for somebody to write this book, Teaching American Businesses How to mm-hmm. Stop Hyperinflation, Save Money on Healthcare, and just declare the tipping point. And when they asked me to do it and selected me, I really woke up the next morning and kind of looked at my wife and said, gosh, this isn't even my sweet spot. I'm going to have to do some research, but it is something I'm passionate about. And one of the stories I came up with that I think really um, summarizes health wealth and what I call local medical tourism uh, very well. And there's somebody down in your neck of the woods, Zev, that if this interests you, David Contorno is one of the most outspoken folks on LinkedIn Mm -hmm. about local medical tourism. And local medical tourism is, you know, as Americans, we've shown we're not going to drive, we're not going to fly to to Costa Rica or to India for a procedure, even if, in fact, it does save us, you know, $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 and can save our employer $50,000 to $100,000. We just, we've had 10 or 15 years to, to prove that behavior and we just haven't. 
It's just not something that we've shown we're willing to do. But local medical tourism is you simply understanding uh, which facilities and providers are in network in our centers of excellence where you can go save significantly. And David, uh, who is from South Carolina down there, shared with me that his research shows that the average distance a person has to drive to get to that center of excellence is only 35 miles. And you can actually save ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars even on your your client copay in the day day and age here of these high deductibles. But the story I wanted to share with you is imagine you have a 16 year old daughter and um, she passes her driver's test the morning of her birthday. Mom and dad have promised her they'd pay for half the car. She saved money for months. She printed out on the internet uh, the exact car she wanted. So she gets home from the, the DMV and you guys jump in the car. You get down to auto center lane. You come to the stoplight. She's so excited. She rolls down the window in the back seat and says, Daddy, Daddy, there it is. The exact car I want on the left side of the street. Same color, same features. Uh, I can even hear my favorite song on the radio station playing. And in the in the windshield in red and yellow, huge letters, it's numbers, it says $16,000. Well, then your spouse on the other side of the car sitting shotgun says, oh, hey, look, it's on the other side of the street, too. The exact same car, same color. Same features. I can hear the same radio station playing, but the big yellow and red numbers on this windshield say $42,000. Well, dad, the light's still red. So here's the question of the minute. Which way are you going to turn? Most of the dads I know would right. pretend like they didn't hear the spouse say it's marked up 60% on the other side of the street and they would turn left and ask that salesperson, Hey, what's the difference between this car and that one? But let me ask you, Zeb, this and all of your listeners this. Can you think in the last 20 years of a time where you had to have a baby or a procedure or a surgery and you were asked to choose the hospital provider and you open that book and you're confused and it's always a little bit nerve wracking where you went with the best hospital and you didn't know the price because quote unquote, you thought of the six words that killed American healthcare. Those six words are, your insurance will pay for it. Well, that in fact is categorically untrue because if you choose the higher cost provider, at the end of the year, it's a guarantee that that cost will be added on to your entire company's next year premium, which is then passed on to you. So what I tell folks is this, think of that time where you were asked to have a procedure and you chose the right side of the street, the car on the right side of the street, that was $42,000 because you felt like you had a blank check when in fact that blank check is actually you having to write it at the end of the year. And the last point I want to make on that car story is this. The quality at the hospital on the left is same as the quality on the right more often than not. The doctor who will operate you at the hospital on the left is often the doctor who will operate you on you on the mm -hmm. right. That's becoming less and less true, Zeb, as you know, over time because of consolidation. But it has been true for the most part. So the question is, which way are you going to turn when it comes to health care? Because your insurance will not pay for it. You will in the long run. Well, I'm, I'm Josh, I'm so glad you, you actually switched over to talk about this next topic, uh, on employer costs of, of healthcare. And, you know, that's what your, your book, Health Wealth, is focused on. And, um, I, I found it to be actually a very, very engaging book and, and very easy to read and, um, and, and great, great points here. You know, again, this is no secret now. Uh, the cost of healthcare are crippling corporate America. You hear Bill Gates talking about it. Um, you hear Warren Buffett, 
uh, ceaselessly, endlessly talking about how healthcare is a, a literally the tapeworm uh, of of the American economy, sucking the nutrients out of it. So, so I think the case is is been made clearly um, in your book. Though, what I really found helpful was you went into nine steps that in your research uh, and from your experience you found to be. Uh, you know, helpful steps for employees as well as employers in terms of, as you just said, um, optimizing the value proposition. And again, I think you've got some real supporters. Um, just last week, uh, Alex Azar, the Secretary for Health and Human uh, Services, and uh, Seema Verma, the uh, Senior Administrator for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, both uh, gave public speeches, which were very much aligned and uh, talked about this issue of the crippling effect of uh, cost of health care. And they were pretty clear that um, that the time is now and that uh, the administration is going to support them in making some serious uh, changes. And I'm going to ask you about your thoughts about that in a moment. But I, I was fascinated with your nine steps and and um, there, there were so many of them that that, you know, I'd love to talk to you about your 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 discussion about converting to direct primary care and the importance of that. Um, you're you're talking about implementing the implementation of uh, care management programs and nurse navigators for the employees that are higher risk or more complicated. Uh, your focus on uh, I, I really love the fact that you included this focus on utilizing uh, uh, data in a very advanced way using machine learning and artificial intelligence to help us predict who needs that help and, and, and who can be impacted by that. Uh, so uh, of those, um, I'm, I'm going to give you the, 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 as the guest, the choice of which one you think uh, you'd like to share with us. Which one, as, as you were doing your research, I know you talked to a lot of people around the country, which ones stand out for you as, as sort of an aha? Like I hadn't really thought about that, but that's what employers should be doing more of. It's a great question. And, you know, so, so you're asking me to kind of summarize a 215 page book in a few minutes here. <laughs> and I appreciate you as a, as a physician really um, pointing some of those things out. And I want to kind of tell you instead of just some of the steps, but kind of what I learned when I was done and said, now, first of all, I didn't know how many steps there was going to be when I started researching. I said, I want turnkey, simple um, steps that employers can plug in literally most likely by just writing a check to an organization saying, come provide services to all my diabetes patients if they are willing to let you help them. Um, come after one year on the job and uh, I want to reward my employees with uh, a free DNA test uh, that teaches them what medications work and which ones don't. And I also want to give them a um, an integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine consult so they can understand how to naturally live healthier instead of just taking a pill when they get sick. And it, it was all those things that I learned that really made this so fascinating. But what I learned in the end um, is what I set out to prove, which is the employer has more of an ability and more of an incentive to do these things for the employee than does the insurer who's, excuse me, the broker and the insurer, neither of whom are incentivized to help your workforce become healthier. And even the brokers acknowledge that they are compromised. And there's a group of brokers out there that I've been put into their, their kind of group of 75 or 80 people where they, they don't even want to be called brokers anymore. They call themselves benefits advisors now. And, and I actually, my organization, Health Wealth at health-wealth.com is going to be announcing in the next couple of weeks the Health Wealth Certified Independent Advisor Certification and Designation. And that designation is a way for brokers or benefits advisors to distinguish themselves as somebody who's going to put the client first. 
Because what I learned, and you mentioned artificial intelligence and machine learning, how much do you as an employer know about your employees? Oh, my goodness, you know so much you don't even know that could help them with their health every day. And even if you aren't tracking it, you have the ability to track it. They have the ability to opt in and volunteer for you to track it. The insurer doesn't have as much data. They have some claims data and some other data. They sometimes are allowed to use it. Sometimes they aren't. But you as the employer have the ability and the power to really help your employees live healthier. And it wasn't until I was done with the book, and you won't see this term in my book yet, but when it's re-released, you'll see it. It's called an EHC, an engaged healthcare consumer. Because it wasn't until I was asked to start presenting to employers late in 2017, where I realized the whole point of my presentation was, are you, Zeb, are you an EHC? Are you an engaged healthcare consumer? Do you shop for healthcare like you would for a car or a home, as we discussed a few minutes ago? Because employers can't reduce healthcare spending until employees become EHCs. So once you understand the goal as an employer is to become, an, uh, for your employees to become EHCs, the next step then is create a health wealth culture, which is for the employer to give them all the resources and tools they need to be engaged healthcare consumers, showing up for work every day, eating healthy, uh, living a physical lifestyle, uh, understanding where the centers of value are when there's procedures, understanding, uh, you mentioned direct primary care, which from an employer tactic is absolutely the quickest and best way to um, get to savings because it's basically taking us back to a day where we have a primary care physician and they're on call 24-7 in some way, shape, or form, and you can have same-day appointments, and they're going to spend more time with you um, because it's your employer basically contracting with one large group in town and saying, uh, just open your doors to my employees anytime, anywhere. And even after hours, I want them to have access to a 24-7 physician or nurse practitioner on call. So all of these steps lead to three things, which is to become an engaged healthcare consumer. I want you to think of the three Ps. Have a plan that's based on preventative medicine and personalized medicine, because that's what all of those nine steps led to. Those nine steps all came back to you as an individual must become an engaged healthcare consumer. And we start off by talking about how a high deductible plan, you initially feel like, oh, my employer's being cheap. They're pushing more costs on me. Well, that's true if you don't engage. So pull the mirror out and look in the mirror before you say that. If you engage, you're going to save yourself significantly. You're going to save your employer dramatically which means they'll pass those savings on to you in the long term. So so just go back over those, the three Ps again. What are the three Ps of an engaged? Uh... It's have a plan. To become an EHC, an engaged health consumer, I would encourage you to focus on the three Ps, which are to have a plan that's based on preventative mm -hmm. medicine and personalized medicine. Some good examples of preventative and personalized, go get your DNA test through Helix or one of the other providers. Then uh, take a printout, take a picture, as my kids always say, of your pharmacogenetic makeup, take it to the doctor. When you go to the doctor, take it to the hospital and show it to them because they're still hesitant to um, look at your DNA printout based on the pharmacogenetic makeup because the electronic medical records are not completely tied in yet between providers. And so doctors are actually bound to use the formulary of the hospital at times for what they're prescribing or the nursing home. And so they're going to do what they're kind of trained to do in terms of prescribing meds, not what you know is best for you. So when you say, hey, doc, this report right here says that Advil does not work on my body. My body um, just 
Um, it doesn't work well with that medication, but it does work well with these other three options. I need you to prescribe those. And if the doctor says, well, I can't because of yada, 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 then say, well, I'm getting a new doctor because this is personal to me and it's personalized medicine. And I need you to do the right thing, not the financially appropriate thing for whomever you're a slave to, which is essentially what we all became in the fee-for-service era. And the mm -hmm. other one that I really liked, and you asked for which which one stands out, I purposely put it last. It not isn't necessarily my favorite, but they all combined led up to integrative medicine. And my good friend Kyle Hill is the CEO of a company called Harvey. And if integrative medicine and naturopathic medicine are something that interests you, I would, I would start with harvey.com and go, uh, it might be Go Harvey, I'm not sure what the website is, um, but if they're an integrative medicine company, and for a couple hundred bucks a year, maybe 350 bucks per employee on a voluntary basis, I say, hey, use it as a retention bonus after one year on the job. Say, we'll give you, uh, we'll pay for your DNA um, test, your your full genome sequence, which is about $1,000 cost to your employer. And uh, we'll pay for um, a um, integrated medicine console, which is another 300, 350 bucks. And for those employees who engage, you can learn so much about yourself and your health by by doing those things. Um, you'll really be better off as a result because integrative medicine combines so many of those. Ev. It com combines, um, you know, getting a DNA test. It combines using telehealth and remote monitoring. Um, it uses these um, creative specialized approaches if you're pre-diabetic or diabetic or if your DNA test shows that you're genetically prone to, um, to, to get cancer in some way, shape or form. Um, all these things kind of can roll up into integrative and naturopathic medicine. And the last thing I'll say about that, I was so fascinated to study naturopathic and integrative medicine. In the 50s and 60s, there were more than 120 um, Eastern medicine or naturopathic medicine programs, university programs nationwide, and really big pharma squashed that. And they wanted us all to think that if you're sick, you need a pill to get better. And I can tell you, as a Gen Xer who was born in 1972, I didn't realize until I did my research on uh, this very subject, that I'd been duped. I, I was uh, raised to believe that um, that if I was sick, I needed a pill to get better. And that's just not true. And so what the book recommends for employers is to offer this as a benefit to you, because there's no doubt in my mind that understanding naturally how you can better care for your body is going to lead to a healthier lifestyle and reduce spending on healthcare for you as an individual. That's that's really helpful, and I I I really love that term. The uh, engaged uh, health consumer is that engaged healthcare consumer. Healthcare consumer. That's really great. Now, now in the book and and you know in the literature, it, you you also mentioned and and you know it's fairly well documented that the cost of care are, are largely there's there's some major drivers. One is that there are a, a small number of any uh, people in any population, whether it's an employee population or a city or a town or a hospital related population that um, consume the, the vast majority of the costs. It's, you know, it's the Pareto principle, 5% of people generally will will uh, consume 50% of healthcare costs and um and a lot of that by the way is as you were just pointing out is pharma costs and so one of the startling statistics for me is that while some other costs in healthcare are stabilizing or even decreasing uh, the costs of pharmaceuticals just continue to rise at an alarming rate and there are some valid reasons for that and and many non-valid reasons for that but in your book you do talk about this issue of you know, engaging the consumers, the employees 
uh, by helping them make decisions or nudging them to make decisions to these uh, lower cost, uh, higher value options in terms of, uh, like you said, centers of excellence or to make better uh, decisions about what um, what medicines they use. Again, nudging people to use generics, which are just as good as the higher cost brands. And so do you, do you want to just can you say a word about that, about this sort of segmentation, and this sort of target approach as well? Yeah, and that's really the easy one. And, and as you said, the it's the ten percent, you know, accounting for ninety percent of the cost rule. And and in healthcare, we're seeing that that can be even more true uh, with those who have chronic diseases. So a couple of the steps that that really get back to that are number one, um, just what I call specialized chronic disease programs. I mentioned one of them earlier. Diabetes to me is the easiest one, uh, where you can uh, provide resources and training, education, tools for your employees who are diabetic or pre-diabetic just to live healthier because diabetes is always in the top 10 expenditures for corporations each year on healthcare. And there's there's other programs as well. And I mentioned one called Equity Health and In-Health Wealth where really it's just an app that you can go to and you can find that center of excellence um, for your procedure. And you as a, a employee are going to save the employer is going to save, the hospital is going to retain your business that they want to, the insurer is going to be happy because you get a discount. So these are just more creative ways of um, really approaching it. And there's there's plenty of different ones. Levin goes out there and they do some similar stuff. Helix has got different programs we talked about too. Um, step two is about reducing absenteeism, which is actually just contracting with two non-medical caretakers at the disposal of your large company. And the magic numbers there, Zev, are if you have a, an office with 400 employees in one location or 500 in the same kind of residential or, excuse me, same city, that's a good sign for you to open up a clinic on site or, mm-hmm. or to put your location um, adjacent to uh, in a medical office building where there is uh, a medical clinic that you can contract with. And then, of course, that leads to another step, which is uh, direct primary care. Okay. Josh, I, I know I, I've only got you for a few more minutes, so I've, I've got some rapid fire questions for you. Sure. Okay. You ready? First, yeah. in our correspondence over the last uh, two, three weeks, uh, you, you wrote to me something about that in the next five years, there's going to be massive changes in how corporate America pays for benefits. What did you mean by that? Well, I think direct primary care is the first one. I think once folks realize they can cut 40% of their budget out, um, because primary care is eating up so much of their budget and, and say, hey, find that local primary care group that also has access to specialists and say, hey, instead of the $4 million we've been spending on all, all primary care physicians here locally the last few years, we want to give you $2 million. We'll guarantee it to you right now for the year. That's all we're giving you. We need walk-in appointments. We need 24-7 um, phone access. Um, how's that sound? Uh, this is capitalism. And I can tell you that physician group is going to like that idea. And guess what? Quick math tells you you still have two million bucks left in your coffers to cover the shortfall and and hopefully for profit margin. You know, I always say there's two types of margin that two million bucks covers. It's either margin for error or profit margin. And your goal is to to get the profit margin instead of margin for error. Okay, so that's that's part of the massive change in terms of what corporate America is going to be doing. And you know, it's interesting you say that um, it is it is a uh, as I'm kind of reading the tea leaves and looking, it seems like that is a uh, a disruption that's occurring. Even um, you see uh, Apple uh, forming its own own Wellness Inc, uh, setting up its own. uh, 
corporate yeah. on-site clinic. And my guess is uh, they're not going to stop there. And of course, you see that uh, Amazon now working with JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway, same idea. They're opening up their own clinics for their own employees. And, uh, you know, what, what I heard Warren Buffett say last week is that uh, if you think we're stopping just with our own employees, uh, don't kid yourself. Um, so I think, uh, you, right. Oh, no, 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 no. There's a massive wave coming there. Amazon could be your employer in 10 years. And maybe that's, you know, at the heart of that question. The other thing about what's going to change in the next 10 years is, you know, the one thing the Trump administration is going to do is they're going to remove the individual mandate that requires um, you to have insurance. And that's going to open up to what's step one in my book, which are these other creative approaches to insurance, which are Christian coalitions and co-ops, which actually aren't managed or regulated by the Department of Insurance. Um, so you're taking a little bit more of a leap of faith. But um, my brother, for example, has been in one for years and he loves it. Wow. That's, that's, uh, I hadn't even, uh, I hadn't even thought of that. Next question. I'm going to rapid fire a couple more. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, the secretary of health and human services, uh, last week, uh, in a speech to the Federation of hospitals, uh, came out pretty, not pretty, very strongly, uh, saying this is the time there's going to be some major disruptions. The federal government's, uh, going to start to use some major levers. Um, and he, he had four points. Uh, one was around giving consumers access to their records, uh, transparency of pricing and outcomes, advanced, advancing new models of care and Medicare, Medicaid, and removing government burdens that impede value-based care. Uh, I don't know if you heard his speech or read it, but who do you think, you know, of the stakeholders that we discussed, uh, who, who do you think they're going to go after? Who's going to be disrupted more quickly? Well, I, I focus more in terms of who's going to be disrupted than on the messages. I mean, a couple of those messages are right on. You know, the feds aren't usually at the forefront of innovation and creativity, but hospital pricing transparency um, is an easy one. It's real simple. You know, the feds can send out a rule that says they're going to be online, you know, within 30 days, and they need to be updated and accurate every 30 days or every 90 days. So that's an easy one. Um, <clears throat> I think um, pricing transparency is is really what drives – the insurers to charge more too because they can hide behind it. So you have the hospitals that are charging too much unjustifiably and the insurers charging even more. I think to answer your question, um, the hospital is no longer a profitable business model. And, and trust me, when I tell you for years it was, the hospital is the largest expense in the model. And what you see and in, in what, uh, and you're down there in part of the country where you have great health systems. Um, Carolina's Healthcare, University of North Carolina, now, now Atrium Health, of course, Carolina Healthcare, but, and several others who have taken a leading position on this. They, they don't view themselves as hospitals because they know that the hospital is the largest expense in the model. They view themselves as health systems who are there to improve the health of their communities. And that's what it's going to take in, in that reimbursement, that revenue that's being lost that used to come in through just putting a head in a bed in the hospital has to be recaptured in some way, shape or form. And value-based care in itself, whether you're doing it well or not, is a way to reduce spending even when you're doing it well by up to 10%. And they're expecting you to give the care even, even more care. So less spending, more care. That means you better look elsewhere for new revenue streams. And you can't just use the old tricky, sneaky things hospitals did, which would be to drive your high cost surgeries like orthopedic and cardiac surgeries and drive a, a outpatient business and things like that. You've really got to get really creative in terms of saying, should we own post-acute? Should we own home health? Should we own home care? Um, should we partner with our physicians? Should we own the coffee shop that's in the hospital and generate revenue off of it instead of leasing it out? I don't know. But what I do know is you're losing revenue and you need to find a way to replace it. Mm -hmm. 
couple more questions and, and thank you for, for hanging in there with me. I know you've got uh, a lot going on today. Um, what, what takeaway message, what call to action do you have for our listeners? Is there something, you know, final message, if you do have one, you don't have to, but if you do, I, I want to give you a chance. Yeah. Become an engaged healthcare consumer, become an EHC. Um, you can learn so much more about what I've been talking about at health-wealth.com, but becoming an EHC is simple. It just means shopping. And, and let me give you a good example. Question your doctor. Why, why is it that doctors and hospitals make us feel guilty? Let me give you a better example than even questioning your doctor. Do you know that the hospital today owns your electronic medical record? And that's the other things that you said a second ago that the Fed said enough is enough on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to own your record. And Apple already made a move to say we're, we're walking in that direction. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. You need to own your medical record. And right now to own it, you would walk into the hospital and the front desk person would look uh, bothered by you when you asked for that. They'd charge you $20. They'd tell you you have to come back in three or four days because they have to photocopy it. It may be incomplete. And they'd make you feel like you're uh, putting them out for doing it. That's your electronic medical record. Why is it that you feel hesitant to ask for that or you feel hesitant to ask your physician about your health to get a second opinion? Or, hey, doc, if I don't want to go to a nursing home right now, what are my options? You'd be amazed how quickly most doctors would say, oh, yeah, you can go home. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just that we're programmed to say, oh, we're going to recommend a nursing home because that's what we've been programmed to do. But until the patient says, well, do I have to? No, you don't have to. You can go home. Do you think I'll be safe at home? Oh, yeah, sure. No problem at all. And when that does happen, you should be a little bit offended by the fact that the physician recommended for you to go home or to go to a nursing home at all without giving you your options. Thank you. And I remember reading a couple of stories, uh, a bunch of stories you shared like that in your books where once the patient said something, you know, the physician or provider turned around and said, oh, yeah, we could take that lower cost options. It's just as good. Um, so why, why is that right? Why is it the default that that should be the default, right? If it's just as good, um, why isn't sure. that what you're recommending first? I think it's what, you know, what you said before, it's just that's the way the system has nudged us. It's the way we're sort of brainwashed. And so I think it's going to take some work to uh, undo that. Um, what are you most proud of in your work? I mean, you're excited, you're passionate, um, you know, you're, you're, you're just super bright and you've got so much to offer. What keeps you going? You know, I just, I think it's when I get off stage and I speak and, and somebody just comes up and says, Hey, your story really inspired me as it pertains to my mother's care or, or the stories you shared, I can really resonate to. Nobody's been saying these things. And I started hearing those things early on. And I realized early in my career that I, I wasn't um, made to work in corporate America because I'm a truth teller. I speak what's on my mind. Uh, and, and I kind of kept that a secret until I was financially prepared to go out on my own. But I, I, I'm, I find it very rewarding when people share with me that, that my input and the stories that I share uh, made a difference in their life. And I also am, am finding this, believe it or not, in America, it's it's some often a David versus Goliath in capitalism. And, and where the hospitals and nursing homes used to hire me to come speak, there's a handful of them that still do. But most of their trade organizations don't want me anywhere near their, near their members. And there's a reason. Is, and the reason is because I'm speaking the truth. The reason is because I'm telling them that the good old days are over. And in a capitalistic society, you know, that's okay, but let's pivot and let's move on. Let's not lead the hospital to believe that they're still the center of the universe. And so for, for me to be Goliath and in my book, Execute, to write about the fact that not only do the hospitals just yield all this power and control that they're going to have to, that's going away little by little, but big electronic medical records control them. And one of the most gratifying things that's happened for me this year 
uh, is what I predicted would happen last year, which is when people said, Josh, your book clearly states in three chapters, execute states that big EMR controls hospitals, and therefore there will never be an electronic focus outside of the hospital on keeping people well and at home because the hospital pays their bills and has no incentive, and there will never be that change until somebody else steps in. Who's it going to be? And I said, well, there's six big tech companies internationally that would make these big EMR companies look like flies on the wall. And guess what's happened in 2018? You mentioned it. Apple, Amazon have already, you know, kind of stepped into this for Hey Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, um, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Microsoft has some things coming as well. So all of these companies all of a sudden have made, made and I, I think that an announcement from Apple that we're going to put the EMR in patients' hands probably scared the heck out of big EMR because they said, uh-oh, our day might be coming. Our numbers, our days might be numbered now. We're not going to be as powerful as we have been because the minute Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook put control of electronic medical records in a patient's care in their own hand, we become less and less relevant. That's probably a 20-year unwind before, you know, the big EMR companies don't rule the world as they have for the last five years. Um, but it's just going to get yeah. back to putting out, and it gets back to being EHCs again, doesn't it? And so it's gratifying to know that my messages um, are, are getting through to people and that they've been accurate, which is why people started calling me a healthcare futurist five years ago. And uh, hopefully I've been, I can continue to live up to that because so far my track record is pretty solid. Thank you, Josh, for, for, I just so appreciate your integrity and your, and your honesty. Um, as you say, your truthfulness. Last question. What was the best piece of advice you were ever, ever given? Hmm. You know, there's been so many of them, but I think the, the simplest one is, um, well, I'll share two with you. One was, uh, I don't know, was it Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer or somebody along those lines that said, hey, if you if you never tell a lie, then you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> I always remember that. It's like, good, because I'm not good with memory. So so I always try to speak the truth, and people often refer to me to, as a truth teller. But I think the best advice that, that I've gotten came from my father when I graduated from college, kind of went out in the work world, which is which was simply to under-promise and over-deliver. Uh, and I try to do that each day in everything I do and act with integrity and I'm flattered when people call me a truth teller. Um, if I'm now a healthcare futurist that's kind of talking about the elephant in the room and, and uh, is also, you know, uh, pulling the curtain back on, on the lack of transparency, uh, I'm, I'm willing to do that because, again, I think it's tragic that millennials and Gen Z aren't going to be able to access basic healthcare in our country. And that's not a political statement. That's just simply something that we all should have access to. Great. Well, Josh, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Josh Luke, for being part of Creating a New Healthcare, this podcast series, and bringing us your fresh perspectives, your new ideas, your bold solutions, your predictions uh, in our quest to advance a sustainable, value-based, consumer-oriented healthcare system. And, and as always, uh, I sincerely want to thank our listeners, uh, those who are out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those who are supporting those taking care of patients. I, I really hope uh, this has been a, a as exciting and stimulating and catalyzing for you as it has been for me. Uh, Josh, can't thank you enough uh, for joining us today. My pleasure. And if, uh, if your listeners uh, already don't follow me on LinkedIn, please follow me at Dr. Josh Luke and I'll follow you back. And you can also find whatever you need to know about me coming to speak or getting more resources and tools on everything we've talked about it at health-wealth.com. And, and Josh, I hope uh, maybe in a few months time, we could have you back on this podcast as well. I'd love to catch up with you again. Anytime, anytime. Thanks, Josh.